Okay, if I could get your attention, we get started. We are uh, we're studying the book of Acts, and so uh, our lesson today is the second missionary journey in the book of Acts, and it uh, you can pick it up at the very end of chapter 15 in the book of Acts, and it's. You'll see an emphasis as we go through the second missionary journey. The emphasis is on both the sovereignty of God in evangelism and also the providence of God, which is obviously very closely related. And uh, providence is that something quite often in, in the missionary journeys looks like, appears to be bad, but turns out for the good. And some things that seem you would think would be good initially turned out bad, very much like Jerry's new car in today's movie clip. Gets a brand new car. Ought to be good. That's even funnier because most of us have actually had something like that happen. You know, the valet brings your car and you go, holy cow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. So... An introduction, I want to read what Paul says about the sovereignty of God and evangelism. I'm going to read this from uh, Romans chapter 10. Paul is going to answer how all that works, how God works. And naturally, people ask the question all the time, what about those who've never heard, or how does this process happen? And he explains it, and he uses a series of rhetorical questions here. And in verse uh, Romans 10, verse 9 through 10, he says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. So if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. But obviously he says to hear, to believe you must hear. So how is somebody going to hear? So he goes on to say that God sends the speaker, the preacher, to deliver the gospel. So in order to hear, there has to be a preacher, and God is sovereignly involved in sending the missionaries, the preachers, the word out to the whole world. And uh, he says there in verse 15, therefore blessed is the feet that bring the gospel. Because remember in those days they didn't have smartphones, or <laughs> so they had to actually walk, you know, and go, and go to these cities like that's what's, uh, Paul is doing in the missionary journeys. He's actually walking to all these places. And did everyone believe? Paul, Paul then says, okay, the, the gospel comes. Je Jesus is uh, delivered through these missionaries. Does everybody believe? And he quotes the scripture saying that no. He says, Lord, who has believed our report? And the answer is that some believe and some do not. And he's talking about specifically about Israel. He says, in Israel's case, the majority of them did not believe. And God knew that would happen. And uh, so he says, God has already said to Israel, I will make you jealous by that which is now not a nation of believers. And talking about taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so this was always God's plan that Jesus would come into, would be introduced as a Jew in uh, Jerusalem, in Israel, but then once the nation rejected him, he would go out to the whole world. And so God is sovereignly involved 
in spreading the gospel and presenting it, and we see the historical account of that in the book of Acts. And last week was the, the first missionary journey of Paul, and today is the second missionary journey. So in Acts uh, chapter 15, if you have your Bible or electronic device, look at Acts 15, the very end of it. Paul and Barnabas, after the first missionary journey, had gone back to the mother church at Antioch, Syria, who was supporting them and sending them out, praying for them. And they went back and they went through everything that had happened and, and told everything. Then they had that church council in chapter 15 in Jerusalem to settle on what exactly the basis and means of salvation, what the gospel, the heart of the gospel really was. And then once that was settled now, Paul and Barnabas decided to go back out on another missionary journey. And see if you don't notice the providence of God here. Paul and Barnabas get into an argument because Barnabas' nephew is John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, by the way, and he wants to bring John Mark on the second missionary journey. Remember, he started out with him on the first, and he got worn out quick and said, I want to go home. And so he went home, and so now he's back, and Barnabas says, okay, he's, he's going to be okay this time. Let's take him. And Paul says, no, I want some people with me who, are, um, who I can trust and who I know will be there. And you're thinking, well, who's right? Barnabas or Paul? Well, in this case, there's no right, there's no wrong, because what's going to happen by the providence of God, instead of just one missionary team of Paul and Barnabas and some others, now they're going to split up because of this discussion, this argument. Barnabas is going to say, okay, fine. I'll take John Mark with me, and we'll go this way. We'll go back up to Cyprus and you get some other guys, and you go that way into Asia Minor. And that's exactly what happened. So by the providence of God, because people can't get along, basically, what do you end up with? Two missionary teams, and now you've got Paul has brought Timothy and Silas and Luke into the game. They weren't on that first missionary journey, but now because of the split, you've got all these new people that appear that are going to be groomed by Paul and going to take over a lot of the activity from him. So this is the providence of God. This is the sovereignty of God in evangelism. God is at work. No matter what people are doing, God is at work. and He's using everything that happens to bring about his goal, his plan, his will to spread the gospel throughout the world. And so... Now in chapter, after they split up and they go their separate ways, uh, we see that in chapter 16, verse 1 through 5, Paul revisits all the churches they planted on the first missionary journey there in the first five, and he strengthens, first five verses, he strengthens those churches, builds them up, encourages them, uh, probably answers all kinds of questions you can imagine new Christians would, happen, would have. And then in verse 6, we see that he moves across Asia Minor, and he's, he's meaning to go up into Asia. Again, here we go with the, the providence and the sovereignty of God. He, they want to go up into Asia, but God, uh, through events and then also through a vision that he gives them, says, no, I want you to go west 
And so they go on all the way, all the way over to Troas, and they don't go up into Bithynia. But what's cool about this, you go, poor Bithynia. They didn't get the gospel. If you read the, the letter of Peter, the first Peter, you'll see that he went up there. So, I mean, God is, is causing all this to happen. He sends Peter up into Bithynia because he wants to send Paul over into the Western world, into Europe, and beginning in Macedonia. And so they get to Troas, which is a city, a port city, right on the Aegean Sea, right across from Macedonia and Greece. And Paul gets this vision. Uh, you can see there in verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9. And he sees in his dream a man in Macedonia saying, please come over here. I'm looking for the Lord. You know, send. And so he knows that that's where God wants him to go. And so uh, verse 10, they determined that God had called them to preach the gospel in, in Macedonia. So in verse uh, 11, you see them go across the Aegean Sea on a, on a ship and uh, <clears throat> they go into Philippi in verse 12, which is a leading city uh, there in Macedonia. It's a Roman colony, which kind of is important to the story that's going to get ready to unfold. And again, what does Paul expect? What has he always done on all the <clears throat> his first missionary journeys and the second? He goes looking for the synagogue, right? Because Paul's Jewish, and he knows that he's going to be able to relate to every uh, area that's got, in, during those days, had a small Jewish community to varying degrees. And if you had 12 males in any area, you would always have a synagogue. That was the, the tradition of the Jews. And so everywhere else he went, there was a synagogue. So he comes in looking because he wants to talk to Jewish men, which would be at a synagogue. And they say, we don't have any of those here. We don't, we don't have any Jews here. But there are some women down at the river, and they're praying, and, you know, they seem to be pretty religious. And with no other options available, uh, Paul goes down there and runs into a certain woman, verse 14, named Lydia. And, and she's uh, from the town of Thyatira, which is in that area, and she's a worshiper of God, meaning she believes she's monotheistic, meaning she believes in one God. She's very much, remember the centurion back uh, in earlier in chapter 10? She's very much like that guy. He believes in, in God, but he doesn't know the gospel. He hasn't believed in Jesus yet, but he's looking. And so what does God do for anyone that is actually looking, who actually is seeking him? He sends somebody. In the case of the centurion, he sent Peter, and here he sends Paul to Lydia, which is pretty amazing uh, because Paul's looking for somebody entirely different, <laughs> and he's kind of amazed. This, this is it? This is what you brought me over here for, Lord? Uh, so right off the bat, Paul preaches the gospel, and what happens, I like the wording here in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart. To respond. Again, she's seeking, she wants to know, she listens, but the Lord has to do something as well. So you've got both going on here. She's exercised her freedom of her will to uh, look for God, and now God is going to open her up to the truth. 
Uh, and we see here that she responds and she believes. And she goes and, and spreads the word to her whole household. So she's probably got relatives and people that work for her. And they all believe there in verse 15. And guess what? The first church in that whole area was at Lydia's house, right? So what is that saying, you know, when you go looking for the right man? It always turns out to be a woman, right? <laughs> or a woman ends up the best man for the job, or, you know, however you want to say that. Uh, but, I mean, again, the sovereignty of God. He does things a different way than we would. Paul went looking for somebody and found her, and it ended up being the perfect situation. And so he was established a church right there early on at Lydia's house, and then he was going about uh, preaching the gospel, and you have a story about a slave girl there. As he's doing this, bam, this girl kind of attaches herself to Paul and his team of missionaries, and it starts talking to them, and it turns out she knows all about them because she has a spirit. She she's, has a demon possessing her. And she's also owned by some men who have a great business going in fortune-telling. And so this girl is like their meal ticket. She's like their ATM machine, right? And when she approaches Paul and Barnabas, I think the demon was probably interested in what, what, they, what they were doing and somewhat fearful of them. And so Paul says... Get out of her, you know, in the name of Jesus. And it, and it works. And the demon leaves, and she's healed and also saved. So what would you expect? Surely her owners and friends are all going to go, thank goodness this poor girl is now not so beleaguered and is saved from this demon in her life, and she's got it back together again. Not so fast. <laughs> You guys keep jumping to these conclusions. <laughs> no. They are mad at Paul because their meal ticket is dried up. You know, and that's, that's pretty much according to human nature, isn't it? Uh, what, com what disturbs the comfort of sinners? Uh, ending their corruption. Uh, taking away their license to steal. Uh, shining a spotlight on their sin. These are things that people don't like. Hearing absolute truth when they've already decided on a different way of life. That bothers people. And so these guys are angry. And they stir up a mob. And they go and just grab up Paul and Silas in verse 19. And they drag them uh, into the marketplace before the authorities. And so they say, these guys are causing trouble and they're stirring everything up. And they are... Uh, causing an, they're trying to lead an insurrection against the Romans, this being a Roman colony. And Paul, they never even got to defend themselves at, the, at this point. Uh, and so uh, verse 22, naturally the uh, authorities want to keep peace. So they say, okay, uh, what, what's their normal custom when you get troublemakers like that? Just take them down and just beat the heck out of them. <laughs> And so they take them down and they, in verse 22 and they just beat the heck out of them. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, this is like my worst nightmare. I can't even imagine that. 
They fastened them into stocks. Can you imagine? They put your feet through two holes and your head and your hands through two holes, and they close that thing down, and you're just stuck there for a couple of days. I mean, that's got to be the most uncomfortable thing. I start, oh, you have to go to a chiropractor forever after that. And then they put them in jail. And while they're in jail, God does a miracle. It's pretty awesome here. Look at this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. So they're not like me. I'd be in there crying and weeping. Lord, let me out of here. <laughs> you know, they're in there singing hymns and praising God. They've got a completely different way of thinking, a completely different mindset and perspective. Because they see that they believe that God is going to do something. He's going to use even this horrible situation for good. Again, what's that? The providence of God. God is at work turning something that seems horrible into something that's good. I mean, you would think, and I'm sure uh, Paul had this going through his brain, and certainly his disciples, maybe Lydia and their group, they're going, how can this be? He's out there doing good work. He's telling the truth. He's working for God. He's serving God. How can God let this happen? How can you not think that? Have that go through your mind. But what they don't realize is, what, what is goods coming out of this? Lydia has been saved. The church has been planted. And now in this story, the jailer, because of the miracle and because of Paul's witness, is going to believe in Christ and be saved, he and his whole family. And when I read that, I thought, hmm, would I be willing to take that beating for that jailer? For one guy and his family to be saved, would I be willing to take that beating? You know, I hope so. But God was doing this awesome work in saving these people in spite of their circumstances, in spite of what evil things that men were doing, God had his program and it's being accomplished. And so you see uh, after there's an earthquake, the chains fall off, the doors open, the jailer comes back. Now in, in that, the custom in that deal, if uh, a jailer lost his prisoners, they, they replaced him <laughs> In the jail. And so this guy's like, oh my gosh, I can't, there's no way I want to be in those stocks and in that jail for the rest of my life. And so he's getting ready to commit suicide. And Paul says, stop. We didn't leave. Do yourself no harm. We're still here. And the guy is amazed. You know, he's saved. So he falls down before Paul and Silas. And he was obviously very aware of their ministry before they came there. Because he says in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I'm amazed by your faith. You've been in here singing and praising God in spite of your situation. And you had the chance to leave and you stayed. What must I do to have what you have? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household and they spoke the word of the Lord that continued the whole gospel, and he believed in his whole household. And then you, you got a little, a, just a quick note here, the rest of the, uh, the chapter there, the authorities come in and, and they say, you know, there's no evidence that y'all did anything wrong, so y'all, uh, you can leave. And Paul says, no, I'm a Roman citizen. 
They went, uh oh. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't jail up a Roman citizen like that, like and treat him like they did, uh, and that being a Roman colony. So they got scared, uh, and so uh, they uh, came in and what can we do and how can we, you know, and they let him go and they leave there and they move on down through Macedonia going south and west and they go to, in chapter 17, Thessalonica. So chapter 17, 1 through 10, uh, they go through the city of Thessalonica and uh, he goes to, they do have a synagogue there and he goes in there and Many of the people in the synagogue, everybody was interested, and many of them uh, became believers there. Uh, and also some of the leading women, he says in verse 4. But the rest of the Jews see that something's changing, and they're going, wait a minute. He's going to upset our whole world. And they probably got the usual scam, religious scams going on, and so they're going, we can't allow this to happen, for everything to be changed and for this guy to take over our operation. And so we see in verse 5 that they become jealous and uh, they went and rounded up some uh, thugs from the marketplace, paid them something. They go, okay, help us stir this mob up to go arrest Paul and them. And so once again, they're arrested and mistreated and, and uh, pushed around and run out of town. And so Paul leaves some of his disciples there in Thessalonica to, con Thessalonica to continue to work with the church and he moves on down uh, the continent there to Berea, which is a really cool place. And if I uh, could advise myself or, or, or you guys to be like anybody in the book of Acts or anybody anywhere, it would be the Bereans. They're the guys that we want to copy and why. Let's read it. Now, these Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness. They loved, they ate it up, they couldn't get enough of it. And they even examined the scriptures. They, they started scouring it and reading everything they could get uh, so they would know more and understand better to see whether these things were so. And many of them therefore believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And so great church there, and uh, naturally, the people from Thessalonica followed them down there to see what they were up to. And so they stirred up there, something there and got them thrown out. So they left there, and they moved on down. And Paul, again, he left Timothy back there at Berea. And Paul, being the main guy, left. And in verse 15, he goes to Athens. So we all know about Athens, right? It's a famous city. Uh, all the philosophers that you probably had to read about in high school and college, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all those guys. Well, in Athens we see here a great story. Paul goes in there and uh, he's alone. And he's probably looking around trying to figure out what he can do. And the amazing thing that he notices about Athens is that they have an incredible number of statues and idols there in Athens. Uh, one uh, guy I was reading said they had a forest of statues <laughs> in Athens. Another guy said uh, that Petronius, a local um, guy who wrote back in those days, says it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man. 
they had so many statues and so many idols all over the place. So Paul notices that and he starts formulating a plan. And he starts talking to these people uh, in verse 18. The leading uh, philosophers in Athens in those days were the Stoics and the Epicureans. And if you know anything about philosophy, Greek philosophy, the Epicureans were like the eat, drink, and be merry, you know, because tomorrow we die. And the Stoics were like the people who said, you know, life is just full of pain and the secret is just to let it roll right over. Never show any pain. Take it and just keep moving. You know, so the Stoics and the Epicureans uh, were always having their arguments uh, at the uh, Areopagus, which is Mars Hill. And they invite Paul to come up because here's a guy who's got a completely different philosophy, different way of looking at, at life. Why don't you come on up? This is what they do in Athens. They sit around and debate and, and give new ideas and stuff. And so they invite him in verse 19 to the Areopagus, which means the hill of Ares or, or Mars, the same guy. Um, so Mars Hill there in Athens. And you, if you go to Athens, you can see it. It's just west of the uh, Acropolis, if you've been there. And, uh, and so he gets there, and they say, okay, let's hear what you got. Let's hear this new teaching, verse 19. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus with all these great intellectuals and thinkers and philosophers, and he gives a great sermon. And his introduction is perfect to set them up. He basically, basically appeals to their idolatry in the beginning. I've seen all these idols you got here, and you've got one idol, you know, they had a statue to an unknown God. Just in case they missed one, <laughs> they got the God of this and that and this. In case we just, one we don't even know about, we'll put this one up. And it's literally said the unknown God. So Paul says, you got that right. There is a God that you don't know about. But he is the one and only God. And so that's his introduction is to appeal to them based, you know, on what they've already done and arouse their thinking about who he could possibly be talking about. Uh, and he says, while I was passing through, verse 23, examining the object of your worship, I found an altar of this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you now, who that unknown God is. And so his... Uh, his sermon, the, you call it the Athens argument, is that there actually is a God who is the ruler and the creator of all things, but he needs no temple and he needs no statue. You can't duplicate him. Nothing can represent him. He's much greater than that. And man is his greatest creation. Therefore, we need, we're men, we're created by him, he runs everything, therefore we need to know him was Paul's presentation. Uh, so we should be seeking him, right? That unknown God, we, should, we need to know who he is, Paul was telling them. Not only that, verse 28, Paul says, and not only did he create you, but he sustains you. There is no life without him sustaining it as well. So uh, you, both your creation and your sustenance, and then verse 6, he says, and all the statues you make, the marble, the, the gold, the silver things that you, that you make on these idols and put on these idols, 
None of that can define or represent the one true God. And then his conclusion is, because that's true, abandon all this junk, all these statues and all this gold and silver that you've put on them. Dump it, and you need to repent. You need to repent and come to the one true God. Because, here's, here's the warning, here's the conclusion. Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, Jesus Christ, having furnished proof to who Jesus is by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection. All the Greek philosophers and, and everything that all these guys believed had to do with being uh, made up of a sinful, evil body, but a good spirit. And so the Greeks said, okay, this body that we have is just a mess. Everybody knows that. It's obvious. But what's good about us is the spirit. So when this body's gone, we say good riddance, but our spirit lives forever. And here's Paul saying, talking about the bodily resurrection of Christ, and they're going, I'm not going for that. Because I don't want this body to live on. This thing is a mess, right? They even justified all their depravity and perversions and uh, their lifestyle, evil lifestyle, because this body's going down anyway. It doesn't matter. What's important is our spirit, and it'll be good. And Paul's saying, no, this body's going to be resurrected. And God cares about what you do in this body. And so they cut him off, and they made fun of him, and on and on. Um, but others, a few, the minority, said, I want to know more about this. We shall hear you again. So Paul went out of their midst, and then verse 34 is the important part. Here's the providence of God. In spite of the fact he was made fun of and ridiculed and run out of there, what happened? But some men joined him and believed, and among whom also was Dionysius, who was one of those intellectuals, one of those philosophers on Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and some others with them also. And here's the aside. Later on in church history, we, we see a lot of writing that a, that a church was established in Athens, and guess who the bishop of the church in Athens was? You got it. How'd you know? That's right. Through this difficult situation, through the ridicule and being run out of town, the church was established. Paul probably left there going, well, that was a mess. That didn't work. And little did he know that God was going to raise these, these, this minority up to start this church, and they ended up with this great church in Athens. The sovereignty of God, the providence of God. And so Paul goes on down uh, through Greece, ends up at one of the uh, really big, important cities there in, in Corinth. Uh, you may have heard of it, a great story. I was there in 2011, and I took some pictures of, of this, uh, these ruins there in Corinth. And uh, I, sent a, I sent that picture to a bunch of people here in Dallas. And uh, Daddy Don Hausman sends me a picture right back 
when he was there like in 1958 or something like that. And it, it looks exactly the same. <laughs> Greece, this is how bad Greece is. They've got this incredible treasure of archaeological sites, and they don't do anything. They don't, you know, they don't improve them. So it looks exactly the same. And uh, it's basically the part they, the little bit that they've uncovered is the marketplace there. And what's really great about this story is they have the governor's chair that they found, which was a raised platform with a big marble uh, seat there that he would sit on and they would bring people for judgment. They, he would settle lawsuits and if they brought uh, someone who's convicted of some crime in there, they'd bring him in to be sentenced and the whole deal. And that chair was called, that the governor sat in, was called the Bema seat, the judgment seat. And Paul uses that. He is brought before that Bema seat there at the, in the city of uh, Corinth and for judgment, and he uses that image uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and also 2 Corinthians 5 to tell the church, you know, after we die and you're resurrected, you are going to be judged. You're going to be brought before the Bema seat of the Lord God. And they would know immediately what that meant, to be judged. And, of course, then he went on to tell them in both of those passages that it was a judgment of what you have done after you became a believer. So everything you did before you were a believer, uh, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. And, of course, all your sins after that are forgiven too. But how did you serve the Lord after you believed in him? And then God will hand out the rewards. That's the Bema seat judgment for believers that you read about in the New Testament. And so Paul got the idea from that, having been brought before the Bema seat himself here at Corinth. And so in chapter 17, we see Paul, uh, and in his letter to the church at Corinth that he wrote uh, a few years later, he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, you remember when I came into Corinth, I was beat up, I was... I was discouraged, I was trembling, I was in tears, I was fearful. And he said, you know, that's important because you believe the gospel in spite of my pitiful self. Isn't that great? Paul humbly says, I couldn't imagine anybody receiving me as big a mess as I was. And you people believe the gospel. That just tells you that it's all about the Spirit of God. God's sovereignty in in evangelism and in the work uh, that he's called us to perform, he is using Paul in spite of all his weaknesses and inability, God used him to do this and to plant this church at Corinth. And so he comes in chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 18. He comes into Corinth in chapter 18 and he runs into some people uh, that he has something in common with. They're tent makers, and he happened to have that trade of his own as well. He had training in making tents. So he comes in, he's run out of money, and he's already had this uh, communication with the, his disciples that he left behind at all these other sites. He said, meet me in Corinth. And uh, he's waiting for them, and so he works in verse 3 as a tent maker. So if you ever hear that, that term tent makers, it has to do with Paul because even though he was God's missionary, you know, he came into Corinth and he worked for a living, right? 
And uh, when his guys come, when his disciples come, uh, Silas and Timothy in verse 5, then Paul was able to devote himself completely. Those guys worked and they uh, kind of had, the, had some money and supported him so he could go out and constantly be preaching the gospel. And he was testifying uh, to the Jews there in Corinth that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. I've done what God called me to do, which is preach the gospel to you, to give you the invitation. And from now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. So here's the synagogue right there in Corinth. Paul goes next door. You can imagine how that angered him. <laughs> he says, I'm leaving here. But he goes next door because one of his converts, verse 7, was a guy named Titius Justus who was a believer, a worshiper of God, and whose house was next to the synagogue. And also, this also angered him greatly, the leader of the synagogue was converted and came to Christ and fell in with Paul. His name was Crispus there in verse 8. He believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, the uh, Gentiles, when they heard they were also believing in Christ and they were being baptized. And so the Lord said to Paul, Paul's probably thinking, you know, I don't know how long I'm supposed to be here. I was only a, you know, like a week at those other places. Pretty soon they're going to run me out of here too. But God encourages him through another vision and says, don't be afraid any longer. So that's how you can be pretty sure he was scared very bad. And he says, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. Well, that's important, isn't it? <laughs> Knowing God's presence. And you also, you and I also know that God is with us. Uh, God gave uh, that great commission to the whole church, including us. He said, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So be encouraged by that. So he says, I'm with you here. And I have many people in this city. That's interesting. You hear what he's saying? There is a whole lot of people in the city they are going to believe, and they haven't believed yet. Whoa! That tells you how many people are out there who are going to eventually become Christians, but they're not now. And if you and I don't go out and tell them, we won't be a part of them becoming. And that's what he's telling Paul. They're out there. I just want you to know, Paul, there are thousands of them here in Corinth and they're out there. You just have to go out and find them. And God has decided to use Paul and us in that job to preach the gospel to people that God has already ordained to become Christians. Is that awesome? I mean, it kind of seems like you can't fail. And that's the point. Paul, don't be afraid. You're going to be very successful here. I'll just tell you in advance. And so he settled there a year and a half. So he was there in Corinth for 18 months, longer than he had ever been uh, any of these other places. Uh, but while he was there, sure enough, they, they got mad at him. They were jealous. They, they were fighting against him, trying to prevent him. And so verse 12, 
while Gallio was proconsul, so he's the governor of Achaia, that whole district there that they were in, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, literally the bema, to the governor, the proconsul, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was, so they're talking about the Jewish law. And the Galio's a Roman, right? And so when Paul was about to open his mouth, he didn't even have to defend himself. Galio says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, if this was actually anything of any substance, I would make a decision. But since this is a bunch of religious gobbledygook of yours, I couldn't care less. And for wasting my time, and he calls up some of his guys and says, you go out there and beat the heck out of them. <laughs> Is that awesome? And so this guy named Sosthenes, this guy named Sosthenes, who was kind of head of the Jews there that brought them up, they take him and just, you know, pound him into submission, just beat the heck out of him. He's probably laying on the ground going, what happened? I thought we had this guy. And guess what? Talk about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. If you go to 1 Corinthians 1.1, do so later, guess who becomes a disciple of Paul? Guess who goes on the missionary journeys, the third missionary journey with Paul? Sosthenes, this very guy that had tried to get Paul killed and just got the heck beat out of him, reversal of fortune, that's the best bidding anybody ever took. The best thing that could have ever happened to Sosthenes is just to have the heck beat out of him. Because he comes to his senses and hears the gospel and believes and becomes a disciple of Paul. His life is radically changed through this experience. Incredible what God can do and what, and what he is doing. And so uh, the beating seemed like a bad thing at the time. ends up being a great thing, a wonderful thing for everyone, right? So what do we see here, uh, wrapping this up, the sovereignty of God in this third missionary journey, uh, the splitting of Paul and Barnabas? Two teams now instead of just one. Much more ground covered. There's a riot in Philippi. He's beaten, put in stocks, in prison. But the jailer and his whole family is saved. Thessalonica, persecuted, threatened, run out of town. But a large, important church is planted there. And we see that uh, later Paul writes the two letters in our New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, to the church there at Thessalonica. Goes to Athens. They make fun of him, they ridicule him, they run him out of town. But what happens? One of the intellectuals, one of the head guys, believes, starts a church, amazing. And now in Corinth, a great uprising against Paul, arrested, taken before the Bema seat. And yet Paul, in a great reversal of fortune, actually ends up converting the guy that was accusing him. And then he ends up with this awesome ministry, 18 months 
of bearing fruit there, building up this great church there in Corinth. So it's a terrific thing. And, uh, you know, just looking back on what, he, what God told Paul, fear not. Life's full of trouble, full of pain and suffering for not only Paul, but for all of us. It's tough. And he gives pretty much four reasons there to fear not that I'll give you as we close here. Number one, a direct command from God. Don't fear. Be aware of God's presence because God is with you and helping you. Thirdly, know that God will protect you. And fourthly, God has many people out there that he needs you to influence. He needs you to speak up. He needs you to defend him. He needs you to reveal the gospel to all those people out there that you know are there and you know need him. So God's got a plan. There's trouble, but God's got a plan in the midst of that trouble, in the midst of those problems that you're facing. So praise God, and next week we'll see his third missionary journey, and uh, he's going to end up in Jerusalem, and he's going to end up being arrested and taken to prison in Rome, and we'll wrap it up next week. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and this third missionary journey and just opening up and revealing uh, how you work and your plan and no matter what goes on, your providence is going to bring it to good. Good is going to come out of everything eventually. And you have a plan, Lord. You're going to carry it out. You're sovereignly in control, and we praise you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for coming into our lives as you did the people in this story and changing our life and saving us as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <All right. laughs>